0: Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. This afternoon, I am joined by a PhD candidate with the CSU Institute for Land, Water and Society, Harry Moore, and Bachelor of Environmental Science and Management Honours student, Mitchell Cowan. Today I'll be chatting to the pair about a very exciting Australian First discovery as part of their individual research projects. But before we jump into that, Harry, Mitchell, you're both looking at Northern Quolls as your subject matter for research. Harry, can you tell me a little bit about what area you're looking at and where the interest came from?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm actually looking at Northern Quolls up in the Pilbara in northwestern Western Western Australia. So we're looking at... My project focuses on how northern quolls interact with introduced predators and also sort of their habitat associations there. So what habitat features are most important to northern quolls. Most of this work we do on Indy Station, which is about 100 kilometres south of Port Headlands, which is one of the, sort of the biggest towns up there one of the major mining ports and yeah i guess this interest sort of came from from some previous work i've done before i actually did my honours down in victoria and i worked out at big desert national park which is in the far northwest of victoria Um, and i looked at dingoes there and it was really great i found i had a great time working out there in such a remote area and being able to you know field work involved a lot of camping and spending time outdoors so that's what i was sort of looking for when it came to a phd and lucky enough Dale Minow, who's now my supervisor and also Mitch's supervisor, he, uh, he got in contact with Judith Donna from the Department of Parks and Wildlife who actually heads up the Northern Coral Regional Monitoring Program up in the Pilger. So we got in contact with her and, and she sort of organised, identified some, some sort of research areas that we could look into and we sort of put the project together from there. And That was about a year, a year and a half ago and here today. In living in Perth and just loving the research up there. It's really
0: good. Excellent. I mean, Perth is quite a way, a way, way <laughs> away from Albury-Wodonga where you reside, Nick. Tell me about your involvement with the project.
2: Yeah, so as you said, I'm from Albury-Wodonga and I attend the Laguna campus, CSU, and so my involvement is I'm working on northern Quails as well, my honours project, under Nemo as well, and Judy Dunlop from the Parks of Wildlife. So, yeah, so my project focuses on breeding dens of female northern quolls essentially so a lot of the mining companies in the area are looking at either introducing artificial habitat or have introduced artificial habitat in the area so what we're trying to do is figure out the characteristics of natural breeding dens for females with pouch young in order to try and recreate that with artificial habitat as well as also looking at some of the current artificial habitat to see how it's performing against natural den sites so yeah so we went up in uh, October, and yeah, set up some cameras, some data loggers inside the dens and outside the dens to record temperature levels uh, fluctuating overnight and during the day, as well as took den measurements, uh, vegetation measurements, in order to try and get a, a pretty good overview of the difference in occupied dens, unoccupied dens, and artificial dens. So yeah, I'm based in Albury and uh, travelled over to Perth and up to the Pilbara. Yeah, just a really, really awesome project, and it. Definitely uh, ties in collaboration with Judy's quoll research that's gone over the last five years, so um, and as well with Harry's project. So yeah.
0: So you were both part of a pretty incredible discovery recently. Let's talk about the albino northern quoll. This is a pretty rare find for one, but also this was the first time it has been discovered in Australia. From what I can gather, this would have been a pretty eye-catching spot. Mitchell, tell me exactly how and where did this discovery occur?
2: Yeah, so um, where we found the qual was actually on Indy Station where Harry was talking about, so that's the major site for my project and it's one of the major sites for Harry's project. So we were looking for areas where potential den sites for uh, pregnant females. So my project focused a lot on finding dens inhabited by Female quolls with pouch young, so we were doing some live trapping uh, to catch pregnant quolls and then tracking them back to their dens. So it just so happened that uh, we were trapping an area of Indy Station where we caught a few quolls. We caught that morning we caught four quolls, uh, mm-hmm. and one of them just so happened to be the albino uh, northern quoll.
0: And Harry, what was sort of you know why why did this stand out? Obviously, someone that doesn't know too much about quolls I'm getting an education right now but in terms of markings and standout features what really caught your eye?
1: Yeah well I guess personally just never expecting to to come across an albino I mean is something that happens in all animals I think the, the odds of like it comes up so rarely so first of all we just we never thought we'd see one and then actually seeing it live it was what really stood that to me was that it actually still had uh, so normally a quoll will have white spots across at the back. Being an albino you'd assume that it'd just be all white, but it actually still had the uh some some white markings on the back which to me I i still don't understand how that works and I haven't really spoken to anyone about what the go is with that. And also the other thing was just the red eyes, I mean they're they're really obvious and when you look at it they're just the glaring demonic in nature. Those eyes are really intense but but it was it was great. It was really cool to to see, to see that.
0: Absolutely, and I guess once you, and you know, not just going for the albino quoll, but when you do catch these quolls, what happens after that? Obviously, you know, you assess their markings and, and that sort of thing, but what what's the process?
1: So, because we work in collaboration with Parks and Wildlife, and they've, got, they've had a northern quoll monitoring program up there in operation for the last five years. That's run by Judy Dunlop and so they've already got a pretty good protocol in place into actually what happens once you get an animal out of the trap. So we like to take all that data as well and that sort of stuff. Most of that sort of morphological stuff. So we take, we get the animal out of the cage into a, so a big black bag. We weigh it first, then we sort of take it out and take the measurements of, you know, its feet, its head, its tail, all that kind of stuff and assess its general body condition. If it's a female, we'll check out if it's got any pouch on it, if it's that time of year. And then after we've sort of finished all those measurements, we put implant a small chip into the back of their neck, similar to what you you know a vet would put into a dog. It has a unique code so that if we recapture that animal, we have a scanner that we can scan it straight away and we'll know exactly when and where we caught that animal, which is really useful to sort of mark recapture study so we can see how quails are persisting I guess from year to year.
0: Now, Guys, I mean, I I work in an office, and it's part of my job. I can't say that I get to venture out, you know, into the likes of the Western Australian Pilbara region. But, Harry, would I be correct in saying this type of study has stemmed from an outdoorsy background from you?
1: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved hanging out. I grew up in Queensland, actually, and I've always spent a lot of time out camping in the bush with my cousins and my sisters and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely, I think it, I was immediately drawn to, to such a remote area um, because I mean that's about as the you can get out there there's not much like sit you know there's nothing comfortable to the city when you're out there so I mean, you're really out there on your own sometimes and it's really refreshing I live in Perth now and Perth's not a huge city but it's still a city, so it's great sometimes to get up there and you get away from everything. You can't hear cars or anything, it's just nature, which is great.
0: For sure. And how about yourself, Mitch? What was what was your background in terms of, you know, this kind of study stem from an outdoorsy you know, being brought up in Aubrey wodonga I assume. You're running around, not stuck inside watching T V?
2: Yeah, definitely. uh, We've been pretty lucky in the area. We've got, you know, mountains and we're still close to the beach and we've got Lake Hume and and bushland, so always sort of being outside, ball driving, camping, hiking, and definitely just an interest in Australian natural history and the Indigenous side of it and, and just being in where we are. There's not a lot of desert around here, so that's always been an area I've been interested in exploring a bit further and getting a chance to go up and see some of the rock formations and and indigenous landscape you know rock paintings and rock art it's just yeah pretty pretty surreal you feel like you're in a different world sometimes up there, but yeah, definitely a massive interest in all types of landscapes and it's a pretty beautiful spot, yeah.
0: And Mitch, you spoke earlier about you know some previous research projects, you mentioned overseas trips, what are some other highlights that you've been involved in?
2: With this trip, I think being sort of an honest project, it's, it's my first research project, so to speak, where you're sort of in control of everything that's happening, so it's been really cool to be able to design our our methods, yeah. data collection, in terms of you know the amount of cameras we're going to use and type of data loggers. Uh, we're using little temperature data loggers inside mm-hmm. dens and outside dens, and just being able to learn about how to use that kind of stuff as well. Things that I've never really had experience in the past, but now I'm starting to learn about how they're working, and definitely that's been a highlight for me, being able to mm-hmm. sort of control the way the project's going and just being able to get out and handle animals and learn about new areas and it's been, yeah, really good. But yeah, I was lucky enough to go to Bhutan with CSU Global a couple of years ago and we did a lot of work with uh, wildlife conflict with farmers. Wow. So that was a pretty special trip for me and a lot of other students that went along, being able to pretty much get on the ground level with local Bhutanese people and see the differences in in natural wildlife conflicts for them compared to Australia. Australia and it's definitely helping me in this project in terms of being able to, I suppose, control what's going on and in terms of uh, running the project and with help from Dale and Harry and Judy. Definitely yeah, those experiences have helped and, and driven me to want to be able to do this kind of stuff.
0: And I guess too, for both of you, while you're, you know, still involved in this project and continuing study and research, what do you think you both sort of intend to do after this is complete?
1: Yeah, I guess. I was lucky enough before, or after I finished my honours, sorry, I, I spent a bit of time overseas as well and did a couple of internships at sort of non-government organisations over there. And one thing that yeah, you know, i mentioned to the people there that I was, I was planning on doing a PhD and trying to improve my research skills and that's one bit of feedback they gave to me was it's just that a lot of those sort of, especially overseas, are lacking researchers. I mean, they've got people on the ground that are willing to do the work and stuff like that. It's just sometimes, I mean, the training they have only, allows them to do so much and so I'm really lucky being able to, to go to a great university in Australia and sort of develop my research skills and you know learn about statistical analysis and sort of stuff like that and it'd be great if I could sort of use those to help other sort of less lucky organisations in doing yeah. the best they can with what they've got and sort of
2: conserving their wildlife yeah sort of stuff really interesting
0: yeah absolutely and how about yourself me?
2: I suppose when I came into university, um, into the environmental science area, I was very set on doing something in the fisheries area and looking at rivers and fisheries. That was sort of my passion at the time. But coming through the four years uni, I've been able to sort of see all the different aspects of the course and the the area, you know, there's there's so many things that incorporated in the environmental science field, whether it be soils or weather or ecology, education, social situations that just sort of ongoing. So for me that, that's really been one of the most exciting things that it is just so vast in terms of your possibilities. So research I kind of never really thought about it when I started university, but it definitely it warmed to me as I went through. So like Harry said, being maybe being able to further that in a PhD or further study to some capacity. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's obviously, as you mentioned, vast opportunity that lies in there, so I don't think you'll be without options for sure. And did you two know each other before, you know, you were both involved in this project or how, how did how did that come about? Was it through your supervisor? The MO or?
2: Yeah, we'd never, we'd never met each other before, beforehand we'd had contacts before in the trip in October through email and phone calls but yeah Harry's doing his project with Dale, um, and I just started my honours with Dale, so that that's probably been why or yeah, how it's coming out, and we both helped each other out in the field with our respective projects.
1: It's really good having Mitch on board, I guess, because um, sort of when you work here in remote areas like that, you always need someone working with you, So, which especially, you know, we're both supervised by the same team, I guess, and so we have a lot in common, and when we go up there together, like we did in October, it's good um, to give each other a hand on on what we're doing, and we thought sort that of both sort of have a pretty good understanding of what each other's projects are about. So that was really, it was really great having the up there in October, and think they'll be coming back next year to sort of do a little bit more work. So it's good
0: for sure. So I guess a, a bit of a fast friendship, no doubt. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Uh, we spent a lot of time together
2: out there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> good morning. Good, yeah, good morning. morning. So.
0: All right, guys, we're just about out of time, but thank you very much, both of you, Harry and Mitch. We really look forward to seeing and hearing more about your research projects and future discoveries. Thanks part us, first. Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au.